Alice Walker called Norman Finkelstein a warrior for humanity and justice. You know, as we speak, they're doing the same thing on the Gaza border right now. Why are they killing all these people? Not because they're afraid of defending their border, which is completely preposterous. One of the leading military powers in the world is afraid of a few people coming up against the fence. That's not the issue. The issue is to keep killing Palestinians until you can provoke a rocket attack. And then you can claim that, well, we have to act in self-defense and then commit even uh, more mass destruction and murder. Dr. Finkelstein is the author of Gaza, an inquest into its martyrdom. It's time for Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. You're listening to the podcast version of Progressive Spirit. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podomatic, TuneIn, or whatever podcast app you use to listen and give Progressive Spirit five stars, won't you? Contact me through ProgressiveSpirit.net with your thoughts and ideas about the show, and be sure to share this podcast on your social media. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. The website, again, is ProgressiveSpirit.net. For the Pacifica Radio Network, PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schock. This broadcast is dedicated to the people of Gaza. They are engaging now in a non-violent resistance campaign called the Great March of Return. It is scheduled to end on May 15th, the anniversary of the Nakba, the ethnic cleansing of the lands on which the State of Israel was declared in 1948. The nonviolent demonstration began March 30th. As of this broadcast, since the Great March of Return began, Israeli soldiers have killed 35 Palestinians, four of them children, and wounded over 1,500 with live ammunition. To help us understand this Great March of Return and the martyrdom of the Palestinian people, and in particular, the people of Gaza, I welcome Professor Norman Finkelstein to Progressive Spirit. Norman Finkelstein received his doctorate from the Princeton University Department of Politics. He's written many books that have been translated into 50 languages. He's an expert on the Israel-Palestine conflict. His latest book that he calls his magnum opus is called Gaza, an inquest into its martyrdom. Welcome Professor Finkelstein to Progressive Spirit. Thank you for having me. Your book is called Gaza, an inquest into its martyrdom, and you use the word martyrdom in the title of your book. Can you explain that? Uh, to what and for what is Gaza a martyr? Well, the subtitle of the book is meant to convey the two uh, vantage points from which I'm writing it. On the one hand, it's a uh, kind of a coroner's report. It's very objective, maybe you could even call it a dry, a uh, relentless amassing of facts combed from a very wide range of resources. As I said, it might even be described in parts as tedious as I attempt to mount my case uh, against Israel's criminal conduct towards Gaza, but on the other hand, it's also an expression of, so to speak, my faculty of passion, anger, indignation at the martyrdom of the people of Gaza. So it combines both a scholarly and a visceral element uh, in the text. You write in the introduction uh, that this book is not a labor of love. And then at the end of the book, you make the comparison between your book and Helen Hunt Jackson's A Century of Dishonor, written at the end of the 19th century about the destruction of Native Americans. And as her book was uh, largely 
ignored in its time. It yet became a record and a witness of, uh, of the truth of what happened then. Do you think your book will find its audience uh, decades from now? Well, first of all, as you're surely aware, it's impossible to predict what will happen decades from now. And uh, it's quite possible that the human experiment will have terminated by then, in which case all speculation is uh, beside the point and pointless. Uh, if, however, humanity survives and people still read books in the future, which is also doubtful, it may be that the longest sustained reading effort will be a tweet uh, if our culture continues on its current downward trajectory. But if all the most optimistic scenarios play out, that is to say humanity survives and people still read books, um, there's always the oh, and also I left out another critical component of this optimistic future scenario, which is that libraries survive, and that's not altogether certain. But if libraries survive, and some college students are combing the stacks, as they're called. And there's always the hope that, like myself, they'll come across this book, blow off the cobwebs, and be as indignant as I was when I read Helen Hunt Jackson's A Century of Betrayal. You write about a big lie, uh, and this big lie is made of thousands of little lies. What is this big lie? Well, I think there are Two big lies. Uh, lie number one, that Hamas is uh, the aggressor or typically deemed the aggressor in the unfolding or uh, never-ending conflict between Israel and Gaza. And secondly, that the various measures that Israel has resorted to uh, are in any way justified by anything that Gaza has done. In fact, most of the Israeli actions against Gaza, in fact, I would say probably all of them, either had nothing whatever to do with Gaza Gaza was the target, but it wasn't the motive. Or Gaza was targeted not because of its belligerence, but because of its pragmatism and its willingness to compromise. Those are the two main motives or impetuses behind the Israeli assaults on Gaza and its ongoing blockade, its illegal, immoral, and inhuman blockade of Gaza. So to be concrete, in 2008, Israel launches Operation Cast Lead, not because of anything Gaza had done, but in order to avenge the defeat it suffered in 2006 when it went to war with the Hezbollah in Lebanon. Israel suffered a major setback and then set out to restore what it calls its deterrence capacity. And deterrence capacity is just a fancy technical term for the Arab world's fear of Israel and it opted to restore its deterrence capacity in Gaza by committing monumental death and destruction. If you look at subsequent Israeli operations, 
they were almost always, in fact, I would say always, the result of Hamas's willingness to compromise and to achieve some sort of settlement, which Israel dreads, because that would mean in any settlement it would have to withdraw. And it doesn't want to withdraw from the territories it has occupied. And consequently, it's compelled, given its overarching refusal to withdraw, it's compelled to defeat what it calls the Palestinian peace offensives, that the Palestinians are behaving too pragmatically, too reasonably, and then international pressure will be exerted on Israel to achieve a diplomatic settlement. So it periodically resorts to armed force, to killing, death, and destruction in order to nip in the bud these peace offensives by strengthening the hands of those within Hamas or in past decades within the Palestinian Liberation Organization to strengthen the hand of those who advocated armed force and not diplomacy. And the way you strengthen the hand of those who advocate armed force instead of diplomacy is by wreaking so much death and destruction that the, so to speak, moderates or pragmatists are put on the defensive. You wrote uh, that Israel really needed to provoke Hamas to get them to fire rockets and then to make the excuse that the attacks Operation Cast Lead or or the later one, Operation Protective Edge, is some kind of a, a response to these rocket yeah, attacks. they're doing the same. You know, as we speak, they're doing the same thing on the Gaza border right now. Why are they killing all these people? Not because they're afraid of defending their border, which is completely preposterous. One of the leading military powers in the world is afraid of a few people coming up against the fence. That's not the issue. The issue is to keep killing Palestinians until you can provoke a rocket attack. And then you can claim that, well, we have to act in self-defense and then commit even uh, more mass destruction and murder. All of these are just provocations, hoping Palestinians will abandon nonviolent resistance against which they don't have a real response. Uh, the international media will be sympathetic to the demand of Gazans to end the blockade, the illegal, immoral, and human blockade, to lift the siege of Gaza, to let materials in and out of Gaza. Israel has no response to that because everybody agrees the blockade is illegal. Uh, so the only response it can have is to kill enough protesters until Palestinians in frustration and grief abandon nonviolent resistance and again resort to violent force. And That's you... what Israel always does. There are two things that Israel dreads. Number one, what's called Palestinian peace offensives. And number two, Palestinian nonviolence. What it wants is, what it covets is Palestinian rejectionism. They want Palestinians to shout from the rooftops that they want to destroy Israel. They love that. And they want Palestinian violence because then it becomes violence for violence. And of course, Israel is going to prevail in that department. If you're just joining us on Progressive Spirit, I'm speaking with Professor Norman Finkelstein. He's the author of Gaza, an inquest into its martyrdom. I'd like to turn to another point here, and that is the level, the depth, 
and the political and financial power of Israeli propaganda, what was the word Hasbara, uh, in, in the in the United States in particular. I'm, I'm thinking of what happened with Richard Goldstone. He gives this report. It is... Uh, dismissed and then eventually he comes and recants this report and of course we we can't ultimately know why but that level what is the depth and uh, political and financial power of israeli propaganda well first of all let's just get the facts right uh goldstone's report wasn't dismissed it was virulently viciously violently attacked by israel and its supporters but the report held up and was a real chink in Israel's ideological armor because Goldstone was a respected jurist. He was a practicing Jew, and he was a lover of Israel. He called himself a Zionist. And so Israel's usual smears, slanders, and slurs did not stick when it came to Goldstone. You couldn't very well call him prejudiced against Israel. You couldn't very well call him anti-Semitic. You couldn't very well call him a Holocaust denier or a hater of Israel. None of those typical slanders, smears, and slurs worked with Goldstone. And so, beyond the concerted public campaign against him, it seems reasonable to infer, based on the evidence, that he was blackmailed and coerced by the blackmail, whatever it was, to recant the report on April 1st, 2011. Israel obviously has, broadly speaking, a huge reservoir of support in the Jewish community, in particular Jews who are at the levers of power, whether it be in the media, in publishing, in finance. Uh, there is a broad swath of support for Israel in the American Jewish community which basically functions on the order of autopilot. They just print Israeli press releases as if they were news. Today, somebody sent me a column by Thomas Friedman about the potential war between Iran and Israel, and it was perfectly obvious that Mr. Friedman was just repeating Israeli press handouts. It's cause for wonder since the New York Times is in difficult financial straits right now, why one of the cost-reducing proposals hasn't been to just shut down the Jerusalem office and reprint Israeli press releases. It would certainly be cheaper, and it wouldn't change in substance the coverage in the New York Times, with one exception, and the exception is when Israel mounts one of its criminally insane massacres in Gaza, whether it be Operation Cast Lead or Operation Protective Edge, uh, the news departments feel a certain obligation to allow some of the truth to creep through in its news columns. Uh, and also right now, with the Palestinians resorting to the irreproachable, unimpeachable tactic of nonviolent resistance, once again, the truth does creep through in even the august and tinted pages of the Times. Actually, in the case of the Washington Post, barely anything ever creeps through. It's a slightly embarrassing propaganda sheet, more akin to Der Stürmer, or maybe 
the Inquirer than to a legitimate news outlet. But the power is strong, no doubt about it, uh, largely, I think, due to the fact that, not entirely, but largely due to an ethnic identification, but also because Israel serves U.S. interests by and large. Israel has the same mentality as large sections of the American ruling elites, and in particular, now that Trump, Pompeo, Bolton, and that ilk is in power, Trump is just a clone of Netanyahu. Uh, that's why they love each other so much. So there is, in fundamental, though not entirely, in fundamental respects, there's an overlapping of interests between the Israelis and the Americans. So unsurprisingly, the mainstream media will echo what Israel says because it serves the U.S. interest. Of the many, many things that disturbed me as I read your book, one of them particularly was the report uh, by Amnesty International in response to Operation Protective Edge. I mean, Amnesty International told a great number of truths uh, in regards to Operation Cast Lead, uh, but when they got to Operation Protective Edge, uh, you write the whole chapters about this, about how they basically just whitewashed the report. Why did this happen? Did Israel really get to international human rights organizations, and how? Yeah, you know, international human rights organizations... They have high professional standards. Uh, they are certainly competent, but a lot of their courage and heroism is posturing. The courage and heroism hails from the mostly, we're not talking about the field representatives, but we're talking about the administration. Uh, they hail from cushy, corporate offices in the leading capitals in the world. They live a generally good life, and they like to hobnob with power. Whatever they say, they do, and they like it, attending the parties, the soirees, the conferences with the movers and shakers. So I think a lot of the posturing as heroic crusaders for human rights is just that. It's posturing and posing. Uh, nonetheless, as I say, in general, they maintain, they preserve high standards of professional integrity, but they are human and they aren't particularly courageous, so far as I can tell. And so, when Israel destroyed Richard Goldstone, it was a kind of warning to the entire human rights community, don't mess with Israel. And so, after Protective Edge, which was a horror of a significantly higher magnitude than Operation Cast Lead, Human Rights Watch, which acquitted itself with distinction after Operation Cast Lead in 2009, it was missing in action after Operation Protective Edge in 2014. And Amnesty International, which also acquitted itself with distinction after Operation Cast Lead in 2009, it simply issued one report after another, after Operation Protective Edge, that whitewashed the Israeli crimes. It was a shameful and shameless performance and I have it on good sources, 
confirming my own speculations in the book that amnesty was looking to appease Israel so it wouldn't face or confront the same threats that ultimately brought Richard Goldstone down. My guest is Norman Finkelstein. He's the author of Gaza, an inquest into its martyrdom. More to come. Stay with us. I'm John Schock, and this is Progressive Spirit. Progressive Spirit is produced every week. It couldn't happen without the financial support of my congregation, Southminster Presbyterian Church in Beaverton, Oregon. Southminster's website is www.southmin.org. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon for the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, as well as podcast. Show KBOO some love, won't you? KBOO.FM and click Donate. Norman Finkelstein is my guest. We're talking about his book, Gaza, An Inquest into Its Martyrdom. This is Progressive Spirit. I'm John Shuck. As I read your book, I read your book, I found myself confused uh, about uh, your own level of hope. Um, At at one moment, I I read you saying that American Jews and international opinion are distancing themselves from Israel's propaganda. And then on the other hand, it appears that the propaganda is becoming more and more effective, such as we just talked about, putting fear into human rights organizations like Amnesty International, that Israel now seems to be able to get away with anything. Uh, What is possible in in your mind in regards to, to change? And if no change, then what's the future? pretty clear in the book, and as we speak now, it appears as if I've been completely vindicated. I said under international law, the people of Gaza have the right, the legal right, not to mention the moral right, to use armed force in order to end the illegal blockade in order to end the illegal occupation and in order to resist the murderous Israeli massacres in Gaza. However, I then went on to enter the caveat that politics is not law. They may have the legal right to use armed force, but politically it isn't prudent because Hamas or Gaza cannot muster enough force to make any dent in the Israeli armed forces. In fact, the whole of the Hamas so-called arsenal consists mostly, if not entirely, of enhanced fireworks. There are no rockets. That's just a myth. There are no missiles. There is no Hamas armory. There is no Hamas weapons stash. It's all just fabrication. And so I advocated, have advocated for the past 10 years since Operation Cast Lead that the only real option the people of Gaza have is nonviolent mass resistance, which confronts the prison fence, or you might want to call it the ghetto fence, or you might want to call it the concentration camp fence that cages in the people of Gaza that that was the only strategy that had any chance of success. And it seems that my speculations over the past decade have now proven to be correct because I think the current round of resistance has real prospects of achieving at least the minimal goal of ending the brutal blockade of Gaza. 
What do you make then of nonviolent movements such as the the BDS movement and uh, people who participate in that in the United States or around the world? Well, obviously, as a tactic, boycotts, divestment, and sanctions are irreproachable and unimpeachable and uncontroversial. The tactic to me uh, is it's it's uh, superfluous redundant to even enter into a discussion about it as a tactic. Any sane individual recognizes the legitimacy of the tactic. But nonviolence is not just about tactics, it's also about objectives. In order for the tactic to succeed, the movement has to set an objective which the broad public considers to be legitimate. If the broad public questions the legitimacy of the objective, no amount of nonviolence as a tactic can have any hope of achieving its goal. Unfortunately, uh, the BDS movement has elected as one of its objectives not to recognize Israel as a state. And since Israel's existence as a state, here I separate out from the policies of the state of Israel. I'm simply referring to the more elemental question of Israel's existence as a state insofar as BDS refuses to recognize the existence. It has a legal right as a state to endure. It doesn't seem to me that BDS has much chance of reaching a broad public. Would that be the one thing that you'd take away from the from the rest of uh, the BDS uh, uh, objectives, such as uh, right of return and, and so forth? Right, but in any public debate or discussion, you can put forth your demands, namely the end of the occupation, the equality of Palestinian citizens in Israel, the right of return. But at some point in any public debate or exchange, the question invariably, inevitably, inexorably arises, okay, that seems legitimate, and that seems legitimate, and that seems legitimate, but where do you stand on Israel? And if BDS's position is, we take no position on Israel, well, then the obvious repartee is then we take no position on the Palestinians. Okay. Norman Finkelstein is my guest. He's the author of Gaza, an inquest into its martyrdom. A final question for you. Would you mind helping me understand, um, you wrote a book earlier called The Holocaust Industry. <laughs> and what is it, and, and how does it work? Well, um, there is the historical fact, which in my opinion broadly speaking, is uncontroversial that during World War II, somewhere between five and six million Jews were systematically exper exterminated by the Nazi regime. There are all sorts of scholarly questions that endure. In fact, the most basic questions about the Nazi Holocaust are still highly contested among scholars. For example, when did Hitler embark on the final solution? And why did Hitler embark on the final solution? The when and the why have still not been answered in any definitive manner by scholars dedicated to study of the Nazi Holocaust. Um, but the broad picture, the factual 
details of it actually having occurred is not open to question except by people who are the equivalent of the Flat Earth Society. However, there is a huge chasm which continues to grow between the actual historical event and the ideological, political uses to which it's put and, in my view, exploited. And it has the Holocaust industry emerged and still largely serves the purpose of reminding the world of Jewish suffering not in order to sensitize humanity to the injustice and criminality of what occurred, but rather or instead to immunize Israel from legitimate criticism by constantly invoking the horrors that Jews endured during World War II. And in that respect, the function of the Holocaust is not educational or commemorative. Its function is PR propaganda, and hence its denotation as an industry. Your mother was a survivor uh, of the Holocaust. Both my parents. Both, both of your parents. Both of your parents were. So obviously you have reality here uh, to, re to regard this. Would you ever say that what happened between the Nazis and the Jews is, has, a, has a similar, a resonance at all with what's happening between Israel and the people of Gaza? Um, well, you ask yourself the following question rather than me give you the answer I'll do as Jews are notoriously known to do, which is to answer a question with a question. So here is the question I'll pose to you and to your listener. Since 2012, responsible international organizations have been issuing reports saying that Gaza, it looks as if Gaza will be unlivable by the year 2020. And in recent years, in the last couple of years, the reports or the organizations have said that they were too optimistic Gaza will become unlivable sooner than 20. As we speak now, 97% of the water in Gaza is unfit for human consumption. And as Sarah Roy at Harvard University, as she said uh, in her latest edition of her book on the Gaza economy, she wrote that the people of Gaza are, and I'm calling her, are being poisoned every day. Now, Gaza is sealed shut. It is impenetrable by the outside world. Israel has sealed Gaza shut. Gaza consists of about 2 million people. Of those 2 million, 51% are children under the age of 18. So, I would ask you to find the right word to describe a people who are sealed shut in a territory, incidentally, among the most densely populated areas in the world, more densely populated than Tokyo, a people sealed shut in a densely populated 
populated area that is either imminently or already uninhabitable and in which the population, half of which is children, are being poisoned. What word would you use to describe that? I'm not going to put words into your mouth. You search your linguistic memory and you find the right word. Well, I'd have to think it's almost like a concentration camp. Well, you know, already in 2003, Israel's most distinguished sociologist, Baruch Kimmerling of the Hebrew University, described Gaza as the largest concentration camp ever. That was his word. Norman Finkelstein is important, difficult to read, imperative to read book, Gaza, an inquest into its martyrdom. I think it's a book that we have to face uh, if we're going to be human beings. I mean, and really, in, in, in some respect, as I read your book, it really was a call for humanity to be human um, and, and to, to stand up for, for whatever is true, uh, at, at least to admit it, at least <laughs> to bear witness to what is true. Can I give you the final word on, on your book and your uh, understanding what's happening in Gaza? Well, the final word is on May 14th or May 15th, the people of Gaza are going to make their big last effort to break out of prison. And there will be a huge mobilization to try to break down that prison fence, that ghetto fence, that concentration camp fence. And we here have to give our all to make sure to do the, our best uh, to ascertain and to assure that they succeed. My interview with Dr. Finkelstein didn't take the whole hour. I'd like to fill these last 10 minutes, if you will indulge me, with a parable. It is a parable I created and told to my congregation on Earth Day, based on the lectionary text for the day from the Gospel of John, the Good Shepherd. You'll hear the influence of Dr. Finkelstein. I dedicate it to the people of Gaza and to all who have a heart large enough for truth. It is called Being Good Shepherds. It's a parable set in the United States sometime in the future. After the internet went down for the last and final time, the soldiers were ordered to burn the libraries. In some cases, special treasures were looted and preserved for payment, for trade, for status, and for hubris. The books were all burned. Old 21st century and 20th century magazines, newspapers, pamphlets were burned as well. Anything printed went up in flames. The orders to destroy were obeyed in every city, every village, every town. The soldiers burned every record of every written word. This didn't happen without screams of protest, without death and violence. It didn't matter. Everything electronic was useless. Any machine that could read digital media had been confiscated decades earlier by the soldiers on behalf of the screens. The screens controlled every word. All that was left were the screens. The screens were well-maintained and served to broadcast propaganda. You couldn't get away from them. There was no power for lights, no power for heat, no power for cool, even in the oppressive heat of what was formerly the western United States. But there was power for the screens. The screens announced how nice it was that they were caring for their people, the best people, free people, good people, moral people, obedient people. The screens rewarded these good, moral, free, obedient people with entertainments and the news of the realm. The screens announced when food distributions would occur and where to go for sterilizations and other medical procedures. And, of course, the incessant reminders that the GPS implants kept everyone safe and how important it was never to attempt to remove them under any circumstance. 
The GPS implants seemed extraneous since the free and obedient people rarely left the camp. Beyond the camp was desert. There were rumors that some managed to survive in secret villages, but the screens scoffed at the thought. Regularly the screens provided images of the soldiers defending the good people from the terrorists, those who tried to leave the camp. Usually around once per month, the screens would show the soldiers rounding up some more terrorists, either for execution or re-education. The population was mostly young, nearly half the population was under 18, and hardly anyone was older than 50. Maya's great-grandfather was an exception. He was close to 80 and had lived through the oil wars. He was just a teenager when the wars turned nuclear. Maya cared for her great-grandfather and hung on his every word. The books were gone. The screens were all that were left. But Maya's great-grandfather, Papa, she called him, still had memories. Memories are hard to trust. They get confused and mixed with other memories. Papa's memories were so different from what the screens proclaimed that Maya struggled to know what was true. She loved her papa, and she knew that as much as the screens tried to assure her that they had her best interests in mind, that they were keeping her safe, that they were protecting her against the terrorists, that they were providing her food and medicine and a cot, and that they were filling her mind with good things, Papa told a different story. Papa told her about pelicans and penguins and polar bears. It was animals that begin with the letter P day. All extinct said Papa. There was not enough room for them on earth. They were in the way. The screens never talked about these animals or any animals. The screens mocked and ridiculed anyone who was accused of telling stories about animals as crazy conspiracy theorists. Papa was careful. Outwardly he obeyed the screens and told Maya to do the same. But between the two of them he told her about everything he could remember. He told her about trees and grass and gardens about rain you could play in, and sunshine that didn't burn. Once he told her a story about shepherds and sheep. She hadn't heard of either. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. A hired hand who isn't a shepherd and doesn't own the sheep would see the wolf coming and run off, abandoning the sheep. Then the wolf could attack the sheep and scatter them. He would run off because he's a hired hand and the sheep don't matter to him. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as God knows me, and I know God, and I give my life for my sheep. Yet I have sheep from another fold, and I must lead them too. They'll recognize my voice, and there'll be one flock, one shepherd. Are the screens the good shepherd, Papa? Maya asked. Papa started to laugh, and then saw that she was serious, her eyes large, brown, innocent, yet demanding an answer. You have to decide yourself, Maya. You have to listen for the voice that tells the truth, said Papa. But how do I know which voice is telling the truth? Maya asked. Listen to the voice who knows you and loves you, said Papa. Papa gathered Maya into his arms. Let me tell you a story, he said. Before the oil wars ended, the oil companies and the weapons makers knew that burning oil and coal was going to cause irreparable harm to earth for centuries to come. Animals would go extinct, sea levels would rise, flooding cities along the coast, weather patterns would change, people would be forced to move, tensions would rise, more war would result. But the companies bought the screens. They used the screens to say that wasn't true. Why, Papa? asked Maya. That's how they made their money. They were powerful. They didn't care about the future. They didn't care about their grandchildren and great-grandchildren. They cared about their own power and their own money. They said things like, well, we'll not be alive in a hundred years or even forty years. Who knows what can happen? We need the oil now. We need to fight the terrorists. Even though they had power and money and influence and knowledge, they didn't love earth. They didn't love the people of earth. They didn't love the animals of earth. They didn't love like a mother loves her child. They only cared for what earth could give them. Maya asked, were they all bad, all the people? No, said Papa. 
They were not bad. It's worse than that. They were afraid. They were afraid of speaking up against the companies and their screens. They were afraid of learning what was really true because they, too, liked what the oil companies gave them. They didn't want to change. It was easier not to think too much about it. The screens were helpful. They were a distraction. The screens are like the hired hands, aren't they, Papa? asked Maya. This time Papa did laugh. Stories can mean many things, said Papa. What's important is that they get you to think and use your brain, he said, tapping her on her forehead. What happens now, Papa? There are no books. The screens tell us everything. Not everything, Maya. You still have your Papa. Even when Papa is gone, you have the stories and the memories I gave you. There are others who have them, too. Don't let the memories die. Earth is older than the oil companies and the weapons makers and the screens. Screens are not all powerful. They even lie about that, said Papa, as he looked out their window at the large screen on the building across the street. Papa continued, One day... That voice that tells the truth, that voice that you know that helps you decide what is true and what is not true, that voice will gather all the people. The people will awaken one day. They will unite. They will hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. They will follow that voice, not because it tells them to do so, but because it invites them to search and hear truth. When will the Good Shepherd come and tell us the truth? asked Maya. Papa laughed and picked her up, took her to the window where she could see her reflection, hers and her papa's. Look, said Papa, she's already here. She's already here. Progressive Spirit is heard every week. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed every week through the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Progressive Spirit is perfect for public radio, community radio, and college radio stations. You can download Progressive Spirit for free on your favorite podcast app. The website is progressivespirit.net. Follow also on Facebook and Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Shuck. Be well.